Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Rastari. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to my apartment in New York City. The other day, I was being interviewed by a young woman, and she asked me, what is a mentoring moment? And I said, you know, a mentoring moment, they are those moments in life where you're taken back, where you have that, wow, that aha moment of, this is life-changing. And it doesn't have to come from a mentor. It doesn't have to come from someone wiser than you or smarter than you, although it can. Many of my mentoring moments have come from the unexpected, whether it's a sign I've seen, like a literal sign, like a billboard that says something that makes me think, or whether it's the unexpected person in my life, the taxi cab driver. So then I said, let me give you an example, because I think that will really paint the picture of what a mentoring moment is. So I told her the story about my moving man. I was 39 years old. I, On paper, my life looked beautiful. I had the shiny corner office of a major corporation. I was married to a man that a lot of people, he was very charismatic and they thought he was charismatic. I had a beautiful five-year-old daughter and I lived in this gorgeous home and my life on paper just looked fabulous. But in real life, it was all falling apart. And on this day, I was moving because I was getting divorced. And although I was the person who initiated the divorce, that doesn't mean you want to be divorced. So what was happening was I bought this home the year before, and now all of a sudden, my life was falling apart in front of me. When I bought the house, I had a dream of my daughter that she would be in the backyard getting married one day, and I knew exactly where the cars were going to be parked. I could see it all. And now, a year later, I'm sitting in my walk-in closet that has been totally emptied out, and I'm on the floor just sobbing, just by myself, just sobbing, because everything in life had fallen apart. And the moving man, who is like this six-foot-four, burly guy with a do-rag on, who is just sweating, it's August in Washington, D.C., he walks into the walk-in closet, looks at me, he sits down, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, honey... You lost your groove. You just need to find your groove. And I thought, all the years in therapy, and I'm getting some of the best advice ever from the moving man. And I thought, he's right. I need to find my groove. And only I can find it, with help of others, hopefully, that they'll help me find my way. But I need to be the one who takes that initiative to say, this is temporary. This is not forever. And I can find my groove. And I did. And I've held on to that story because that's not the last time in life that I have lost my groove. So that is my mentoring moment. And now I'm sitting across from a table from Peggy Cafferty, and she's looking at me with her beautiful eyes, um, getting a little, I don't want to say teary-eyed, but she's showing emotion, making me a little teary-eyed as I'm telling my mentoring moment. And Peggy is a wonderful friend. We When we first met, it was one of those just click moments of, you know, I think I sat down within a minute. It was, and then two, suddenly it was two hours later and we're like, oh my God, I got to be in a meeting. I was like, I got to be here. The conversation just flowed and it went deep and it went really deep. And sometimes we tease every time we're together, we seem to cry together about some good things even. So not just sad tears, but happy tears as well. So what, you know, what does Peggy do? Well, Peggy is an actress, a writer, a producer. She does films, she does television, and everything she does, what's most important about the titles, because the titles are fabulous, but she does it with passion and she does it with action. She doesn't sit around and talk about it, and everything she does, she truly believes in what she's doing. And that's one of the things that I just love about you, Peggy, is that you really believe in what, you really believe in it. And when others join you, we join you because we believe in you and we believe in your projects. And you're a connector, you're just a fabulous connector. And it's more than just saying, I will introduce you to someone. You do it with the spirit of generosity that just overflows. 
So I'm so, so happy to be here with you. So thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you. My God, that's quite a quite an introduction. I feel absolutely the same way about you. Well, thank you. And so now we're going to kick into your mentoring moment. What was that time that something happened that changed your life? Well, it's interesting as I listen to your um, mentoring moment, I think about how often mentoring moments come from great pain. Great wisdom comes from great pain. And my mentoring moment is similar. So 11 years ago, my brother Liam um, passed away and he committed suicide. And I'm a part of a huge Irish Catholic family. And I always thought I was the luckiest person in the world to come from this family. So I couldn't comprehend no matter how bad things got, why he chose to leave. And I, I was bathed in grief. I had um, a two-year-old and a four-year-old and I, uh, I guess, and um, I, I was suddenly um, without a skill set to deal with grief. It like would come in waves when you would least expect it. I'd be in the grocery store and um, you know have to leave all of a sudden because I was overcome with emotion or whatever it is. So I was in a Bikram yoga class. I love hot yoga. And um, we went into the eagle pose, you know, when you wrap your arms as tightly as you can around each other and your legs and you're squatting down. And there was a guest teacher and she said, as you're wrapping your limbs around each other, think of someone you need to forgive. And I had no idea because I'd never thought about Liam's death as something that I needed to forgive, that I need to let go. And his face was so clear in front of me at that moment. And as I released, I was supposed to forgive him as you release the pose. So I burst into tears in this class of 30 people. And I thought, oh my God, that's the answer. Whenever I'm stuck, whenever I'm really in pain, I either need to forgive someone or forgive myself. And during that time, which was extremely dark, um, I learned empathy in a different way. So like if I had to leave the grocery store, I remember being at a black tie Christmas party with my husband. It was the first time that I'd gone out socially since my brother had passed away. And all of a sudden someone, they were having really um, menial conversations, conversations about you know someone's shoes or someone's accent or something. And all of a sudden those conversations meant nothing. They were completely irrelevant because I knew exactly what life was about now with, with painful clarity. So I t turned to my husband and I said, we have to leave. I have to leave right now. Right now I have to leave. And I remember people being like, what is wrong with her? Um, and at that moment, I realized that many other moments in my life, I needed to approach situations with a lot of forgiveness because you never know what's going on where somebody needed the benefit of the doubt. So if somebody's walking out of a room or they're crabby or they're crying on the bus or whatever it is, I now give them the benefit of the doubt. Where before all of that tremendous pain, I thought that I had empathy, but the truth is I didn't. And how does that play? That's such a touching story. You know, I lost my nephew when he was 29 years old and to leukemia and to a lung, dual lung transplant. It was just devastating. It was almost two years ago. I'm and there's, and I'm so sorry for the loss of your loss of your brother. How long ago? That was 11 years ago. Yeah. 11. It's just, it, it never goes away. I mean, I don't think it, hopefully it gets better, but I just think as you're telling the story and being able to see the look in your eyes of how painful it is. Um, but how do you, how does that play out in other parts of your life now? Or how, well, let me go back. How hard was it to make that move? I mean, it's, I think sometimes we tell the story, but it sounds easier to get to that next point than it really is. Well, I think just like your moment where you, it was a, an awakening at that moment where somebody looked at you and just thought, you've got this, you know, you just need your groove back. It was the same for me in many ways, right? I thought, God, life is here and it's precious and it's amazing. And I need to take advantage of every day in a different way. Um, and it made me appreciate the people in my life. You know, when you find your people, um, I think that I cling to them now in a different way. And, and I also recognize my intuition is heightened in some ways. When you meet your people, you know who they are. Um, so it, it was a part of a journey that um, it started then and it, it lasted for a few years where it became much more clear about the kind of stories that I wanted to tell. So in, um, in an Irish family, um, it's all about storytelling. Like we'd gather around the fireplace. It's not around the television. In fact, we didn't have one for seven years. Um, and we would... Um, we would tell stories and you'd listen to stories about generations that had passed and we would sing Irish folk songs, which are all very sad stories. <laughs> um, and um, so I was, it was always a place in my life where I felt 
the most connected to other people. And I never care, cared what the medium was, whether or not I was writing an essay or I was singing a song or I was performing a play or whatever it was. It was to me just all about storytelling. Um, and then as an actress, I would take any job that came basically, like whether or not it was a fluffy romantic comedy or it was a, a horror film or whatever it was, but that started to feel empty. And so the older that I got, the more focused I became on what kind of stories I wanted to tell. And I remember um, I was in my office and I had a slate of films. I just produced two films. And um, a friend of mine, Carmine from Miglietti, introduced me to this girl named Danielle Lurie, who had written um, a script about an honor killing. And I read the script and was blown away, not only because of her prolific, talented writing, but because the script had an opportunity to ignite conversations about honor killings. And most people didn't even know what an honor killing was. And honor killings have been on the rise in the U.S. and the U.K. And, and um, I found that I had so much more passion in my life um, as I was telling, as I was trying to sell this script. And um, it actually opened up all kinds of doors serendipitously. Like I feel when you're on the right path, you get signs every day. People come into your life in different ways. And so now I find there's great crossover between the boards that I sit on and the kind of stories that I want to tell. Um, I'm really drawn to women's issues and making sure that, you know, things change for the next generation uh, of women. I um, I look at my, my own family. I, I actually was sitting around a fireplace in Ireland um, as a teenager and um, talked to my grandmother and wanted to know how my grandfather um, wooed her. And um, I learned that my grand my grandmother was in an arranged marriage. Oh, what, in Ireland? In Ireland, Yeah. And I was really surprised by it. Um, they were madly in love, very different. She was taller than him and there was an age difference and all the rest of it. But I was also saddened by it. And um, she was one of six sisters and her story turned out really well, but she had a sister whose story didn't turn out well. And she ended up um, in an arranged marriage to a much older man and you know, became an engulfed in grief. And uh, if, if, if this were a romance story, we'd say, you know, died of, of sorrow, but, um, she, uh, you know, didn't live a long life. And I just thought I'm one generation away from an arranged marriage. And that's a powerful thing to absorb. And as I look at arranged marriages and child marriage and honor killings and countries where women can't vote, I just think we have so much work to do. And I have to be a part of that work. And so the more stories that um, I'm involved in, whether or not it's, you know, a doc on India's um India's daughter, or it's a story about, you know, saving elephants. Um, we don't want to be the generation that lets this iconic animal die. Uh, if I'm telling a story that's going to have some kind of impact, I have so much more passion about telling the story. It's easier to ask for the money. It's easier to ask for the, the artist to step into play. It's easier to spend an extra two hours in a day if you know that your story is going to make a difference. I still love a good romantic comedy. In fact, I'm trying to produce a Kalmar Christmas movie, but, um, but my passion definitely is in igniting stories that will make a difference. And how old were you when you got to that point of realizing that your passions really have an important play in your work and your life? You know what? It was that 40 mark for me. Um, I think that there are always benchmarks in our lives. Um, I, I had two small children. I My business was small, but not really thriving. Um, and I was just coming more in tune with following my bliss. And now I can feel it. Like you could feel yourself smile and take pride in a room in a different way when you're stepping into your bliss. And um, at the time I was just like, mm, that felt good. That was interesting. Why did I respond differently to that here where now it's, I just embrace it fully. And I, I, do, I do think whenever we're doing something that we absolutely love, it just shows in everything we do, right? When we walk into a room, how we position ourselves, how we tell our story versus being that well, here's what I do with that meek absolutely part of us coming out. It's that exuberant part of us saying, here's what I'm doing. And we're very yes. animated when we tell those stories. You can see it all the time. Absolutely. So I have a question because I've never produced a film, but I always think, how hard is it to actually say this is good enough to go? That I mean, I write my post on Forbes. And sometimes I like have the hardest time pushing the publish button and I can go back in because it's online. And if something, I mean, I try to make them as perfect as possible, but it isn't the final. Right. And even with that, I have the hardest time pushing publish. It's like, well, it could be better. I could do better. 
How do you get to that point of saying, I just have to push publish? It's an enormously collaborative um, process, filmmaking in, in general. So um, it's very difficult to know when it's when it's finished, especially because in editing, you're always getting it down. Is it, is it short enough? Is it, you know, bright enough? Is it funny enough? Is it you know, whatever it is that you're, you're aiming for? Um, so I have like a group of trusted advisors, I would have to say that, um, when, a when something that we're working on gets to a certain point, I'll slip it to them and say, could you give me your opinion here? And then you're constantly taking notes and re-editing and re-editing it down. And I think you just kind of know when you're ready to move on, when it is what it is. Um, it'll never be 100% perfect because they're you know, works of art that are enormously co collaborative, but um, at some point you know that you have to let it go. And do you look back after you let it go and think, when you watch, do you think, ooh, I wish I would have done, or do you just let it really let it go? Honestly? Yes. <laughs> honestly, yes. No, lie to me, lie to me. No, honestly. The truth is that I do, I, I never officially um, can say it. this is exactly as it should be. I was listening to a sizzle reel that we made the other day, and a part of it bothers me, for sure. Um, but I, I can't at this point in time go back and, and re-edit it. But it's all learning processes. You know, every hopefully every movie that I make will be the next better than the, the one previously. And, um, you know, certainly look at, you know, old acting films and think, oh, God, you know, I, I would be so much better now. Um, and it's a growth process. And I, I hope that I'm constantly growing. I, I agree that it is. I really do try to tell myself these are all learning experiences. I really do. But I have the hardest time getting out of my own way. Of Sometimes we did this event the other night that was OK. So I was dead tired. And I was very happy to be invited to the event. And so I went to the event and we were doing intuitive intelligence, meaning, you know, how do you connect with yourself and how do you connect with others? And as you know me, that's something that is just right up my alley, right? I mean, For I am sure. that person who wants to tap into that intuitive intelligence, but I was so tired. So I get there and getting there wasn't easy. And I get there and I really at this point just want to be home in like laying on the sofa doing nothing. But we are all, so 20 women, we're all directed to stand in a, to stand in the middle of the room and take our shoes off. There were some other things that played in before that, but bottom line, take our shoes off and connect with the floor, connect with the ground, connect with the universe as, as much as we can connect, right? And then our instructor says to us, okay, so what I want you all to do is we're going to go through the alphabet. We're going to go through A to Z, and each person is going to say a letter with your eyes closed. So you're not going to know who might be saying, about to say a letter, right? So basically I say A, you say B, C, D, what, you know, we keep going through all of this. And we're going to get to, we're going to get to Z. So I'm like thinking, okay, we're going to close our eyes and we're going to go through the alphabet. Okay. So being the overachiever I am, right, says, okay, go. I say, A. I got A, right? So nobody else could say that that quickly. So I had A. We get to M and we're going through it. We get to M and there's a pause. And I say M and so does somebody else at the same exact time. So we go back to the beginning. Now I'm really happy our eyes are closed, so no one knows I'm the second, I'm the other person who said the M because I'm sure they're probably going to shoot. <laughs> so we have to go back to the beginning. So we do. I don't say A this time; someone else does. We get to E. There's a pause. I say E. So does somebody else. We go back to the beginning again. The instructor says, "Peggy's sitting here with her mouth open." <laughs> This is why I'm really happy people didn't have their eyes open to see that I was the person who kept repeating the letter. And to be perfectly honest, it happened a third time. So it happened with the letter um, A, L, and M. So anyway, so now he says, okay, I'm going to give you different directions. I still want you to keep your eyes closed, but don't say a letter unless you feel like you own that letter, that you have to say it. Well, truth be told, I didn't own any of the letters earlier. I just wanted to get the Z. I mean, I was like being the overachiever and the team player. If we all don't speak, how are we going to get to Z? So he starts and there are pauses and I'm thinking, maybe it's my turn to speak. But I'm like, no, I don't feel it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to breathe through the exercise. We get to Z seamlessly. Somehow we got to Z without me being an overachiever, without my participation at all, right? 
So do you know, that was like one of those real wake up moments for me to say, when you're not present, whether it's that kind of present or whether you're doing a job and you're just not into it, whatever it is, what pre, whatever present means in that moment, right? Let it go and breathe, whatever breathe means to you. And hopefully it's breathe. I mean, it's actually breathe and let others who can do the job better than you do it. And maybe save yourself for the thing you can do better or that you're in the moment to do. So that was another mentoring moment I had last week. So now I'm very grateful that I did not go to bed, that I did not come home and lay on the sofa <laughs> because it was really a big moment for me to say, just breathe sometimes. It's funny that you say that because I, I think you're such a good listener. It's one of your best qualities. I think you hold a safe space for a conversation and you're, you're truly a listener. Um, and I think that it's the same skill set. You know, you're taking it in and you're l listening and allowing someone else's rhythm to you know take place in the room. And I think that that's the greatest gift that you can give to someone else. Um, so it's funny to me that you would, you weren't in that place because I find you always to be in that place. Well, thank you. But you know, there's something that I learned from you. Thank you for that. That I learned from you when we were having lunch last week. And I had told you about my nephew dying, right? And you gave me the space to tell my story and you didn't tell me about your brother until after you didn't. And, and not that people can't interject their stories to show empathy. I get that. Like you might, if you would have said to me, you know, I really understand because my brother died when he was 29 and I understand the pain that you were feeling when your nephew died, that would have been fine. I wouldn't have thought she's taking my story or she's trying to up me one. That would not have been what, at all what I was thinking. But it was more that you allowed me to tell my story when you also had a very painful story about someone that you die, someone um, that you love has died. But you gave me my space. And I really walked away from that and thinking, I always try to tell people my stories to share them because I want them to understand that I understand. But sometimes you got to give them a little more space to have their story. And, and to hear more of their fresh. story. Your story was new. Your grief was still new. It's different. Right. But, but it's still, you, you gave me that space. And so that's one of the things I'm taking forward. Another mentoring moment in life of, of taking that forward. Well, Is there you. anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet that's important to you? Well, it's funny. Um, I was talking um, earlier. My, my daughter is 13 and she came home yesterday and was talking about how um, some of the girls in her class don't like the word feminism. And she was explaining why they had to embrace feminism, which made me a proud mother, but it, but it also made me really concerned. And, um, it, I wanted to open up a dialogue as to, you know, say thank you to these amazing women that have gone before us, the, um, Gloria Steinem's and Dolores, uh, Dolores Hertes and all of these fantastic, um, women that have paved the way but I, I'm really curious as to why feminism isn't, the word isn't being embraced, especially as a, as a woman is running for president at the, at the moment, and we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of the, the ability to vote here. Um, why is it that some young women aren't stepping into that space and saying, we deserve gender equality across the board? I don't know, what are your thoughts? Well, I think one is, what I have seen in from, from millennials, and this even goes back six years ago, is... This is the generation below millennials. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and she's being taught about Gloria Steinem in, in school. So are they... Because what I learned then is that the millennials weren't. Gloria Steinem wasn't a part of any conversation. So they didn't even know what feminism meant. That, like the true definition of feminism, right? So one young woman who wrote a book on feminism wrote, said to me one day that she was maybe 18 at the time when she wrote the book, she said, I didn't even know what feminism was. One day my mom gave me a clipping out of a newspaper and I started to read it and I was like, oh, that's what feminism is. I really like this. I want to be that person. And it was an article about Gloria Steinem that, that her mom had given her to read. So I think part of it is they don't even know. I, I don't think young people actually know what feminism means. I think a lot of people don't know what feminism means, right? If you ask a guy, are you a feminist? a lot automatically say no, because I'm a guy, but you can be a feminist absolutely, and be a guy, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of it goes to not even knowing what the word means, 
we were talking earlier too about, you know, I have a friend, we were talking about the rebellion. So using feminism for rebellion. So I have a friend whose daughter doesn't shave her arms because she says she's a feminist. To me, that's not being a feminist. I mean, if you don't want to shave your arms, that's your prerogative. I'm not, I'm not going to judge you here. That's not what that's about. I mean, it that way, but that's not being a feminism, a feminist. That's about, to me, that's your choice to do whatever you want to do. And if in the United States, if shaving your arms is a thing to do, that is the accepted thing and you decide you don't want to do it. So are you revolting or are you just saying that's who I am? I don't know, but I don't confuse that with being a feminist. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure some people do. So I think that's not clear. For us, I think it's easier. I'm in my 60s, you're in your 40s. For us, you're in your 40s, right? (laughs) For us to, um, you you look so great. I thought you probably, if you're like 50, I'm gonna be like, okay, whatever you're doing, (laughs) I'm doing. is I, I think you know we have Hillary Clinton. We grew up with Gloria Steinem. We grew up with the feminist movement, and it's just part of who we are. But our daughters didn't. My daughter's 23, and she didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. As much of a feminist as I am, and then it became a dirty word. So, what are your thoughts? So it's interesting because um, Sheryl Sandberg is my generation of women who basically said we made a huge mistake. We're not continuing this amazing path on. Um, you know, going back to work uh, and and having the balance, uh, half of us chose to stay home. And as a result of that, we did not move forward in terms of more females stepping into seat positions and all of that kind of thing. And now lean in. You know, we're still sitting back in, in conversations in, in boardrooms. And, um, you know, it was an awakening. Her voice was kind of a, that's the third wave of feminism or the fourth wave of feminism that's going on now, which is so interesting to me. Um, so what happened? Why did this dormant period happen? I guess, which is so interesting. And how will it move forward? Um, we were speaking earlier about uh, Sweden, which is kind of the feminist mecca, you know, where men and women both proudly say that they're um, that they're feminists. And they changed the definition of rape there. So if a, a woman's bum was touched inappropriately at work, it was called rape. And so, of course, they have the lowest rape incidents in the, in the country. But um, so what happened in that culture for a generation that didn't happen here? And how can we catch up to that? And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have one either, but it's definitely a problem. And I think we, and we hear it all the time, right? And I think people are accepting lean in in very different ways. And except some are accepting it. Some are saying, really? You want us to lean in? I mean, isn't the corporation's problems? Is leaning in really a feminist thing is lean in something that we're telling women to do one more thing. So I think it's one more of those things that as a conversation, there's not a lot of clarity sometimes. It's like recently this, this term, um, mansplaining, you know, has come in. And can you um, you talk about what that is? Sure. So so I've become like hyper aware of it, to be honest. So at a dinner party, um, even with dear friends and colleagues who who we respect each other, I notice for sure that men are talking over women much more than women talk over men. They interrupt them. They correct them. And it's happening in social situations and it happens in professional situations. And so it's a question, even with Hillary Clinton the other night in the, in the debates, um, it's a problem with enormous certainty. It's a problem. And until we sit up, lean in and, and say, don't interrupt me. It's incredibly rude. I'd like to finish what I'm saying. Or, or we do the same thing where we do interrupt them. We do correct them. Um, then we're still not treated the same, even on equal footing, even in conversations. And that's not okay. And you're seeing that I, I see it still not as much as I did when I was growing up in the corporate world, because a lot of times you were a token woman, not that there still aren't token women, but 30 years ago in the corporate world, a lot of times you were one woman in a room of all men or mostly men to, so your voice, I I was in meetings with men, not with my company, but from the outside on sales calls. And they literally would talk over you and around you. They would go around the room and pass over you. And you would be like, I do have something to say. And then someone once said to me, I think Denise is so aggressive. And I was so offended by that. I, and I said, I'm not aggressive, I'm assertive. And somebody really close to me, another guy said, well, maybe you're nicely aggressive. And I said, what's that supposed to mean exactly? And you know why I was offended to be aggressive, I look back at this now, I was, you know, tw- I was like early, my early 30s. 
I would now be like, that's great. Thank you. And so what are you? I, my, my whole response would have been different, but I was so taken back. I didn't want to be, I didn't want people to say I was aggressive. So yeah, I've matured a lot. I've grown up a lot. I've gotten a lot smarter and it would be like, thank you. I'm happy. I'm aggressive. I agree with you though, where it's not, it's not an adjective that I would embrace if somebody said, you know, that I was aggressive, but suddenly if you're not aggressive, you'll get passed over. You won't be successful. It takes an incredible aggression to be a good leader. It takes incredible aggression to get a passionate point across. Uh, I'm going to own that word. I think aggressive is a good word. Along with being genuine and authentic. So, yes. Because those are good words, right? They're, they're We're genuine. Words. So when someone says to you, you're genuine, when someone says you're authentic, you're like, yay, I'm authentic. I'm genuine. And yes. That's who I am. But when they say you're aggressive, it's like, oh, really? How can you? So let's both passionate. own it. Let's make a let's make a commitment to each other. We'll it's do a, a pinky promise. Absolutely. We're, we're going to embrace no, being okay. aggressive as much as being genuine and authentic. Speaking of being genuine and authentic, I was really happy when I learned that True Car wants to support mentoring moments. That's just a really great thing. So that happiness, I was like, this is great. And then I got the email that said, when you talk about True Car on your podcast, make it personal. And I thought, I don't know how to do that. I am so genuine, so authentic. I haven't bought a car in 10 years. And then I thought something that I tell young women all the time, information is power because it is. So I thought, okay, I need to get informed. So I downloaded the True Car app and I thought about my daughter who's 23 and she's planning on buying a used car in the next year. So True Car has new cars, but they also have like 500,000 previously owned vehicles on their site. So I went to True Car, I downloaded the app, and I typed in the car that she wants, one of the cars she wants. I typed in red, Jeep, I typed in her zip code, and then I hit search. And what popped up were red Jeeps sold by True Car certified dealers, like within 25 miles of where she lives. It showed the prices, so I could you know look right there and say, okay, she can afford it, she can't afford it. And then a really cool feature that shows how much other people in her area have paid for the same car so that we can see, is this price really a fair price? Is it a good deal? And I, I really was impressed. I mean, genuinely and authentically, I thought if I were buying a car, I really would use True Car. So I texted my daughter and I said, you need to check out True Car. So I'm sharing that with you all. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit truecar.com or download the True Car app to enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. Now here's an exclusive podcast one killer clip from How I Got Here, talking with NBC's Tom Brokaw. So they pressed and pressed and pressed, and then they came and said, you've got to move, and you've got to go to the White House because it's the beginning of Watergate, and Dan Rather's got a big leg up, and we need somebody to go in and compete against him. What I didn't know until later is that when I got to the White House, some of the uh, fusty old-timers in there wrote a letter to the president of NBC News saying, you can't assign some kid from California to the White House in this big story. This is an outrage. Download new episodes now on the Podcast One app or subscribe at iTunes and PodcastOne.com. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges, and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments. Takeaway. So while Peggy and I have been talking, somebody who I just love is sitting next to me now, but she's been with us the whole entire time. And I say I love her, and I really, truly mean that. I met, the person is Tala Hadavi, who I met like 10 years ago. And here's how we met. It's a great story. I was looking for a tutor for my daughter who was in eighth grade. And I put an ad in American universities, classified ads, and I'm looking at American universities, classified ads. And I see this description of this woman who just sounds perfect. So my husband and I go to meet with her and it was like with Peggy. It was that like love at first sight. I was like, okay, this is perfect. And then she said a few other things that made it really perfect. She was the captain of the female basketball team at American University, which was really great because my daughter, as a lot of people know, is adopted. She's 5'10", and I'm like 5'3". So having a tall person in our life was really great. And then Tala just nonchalantly says, oh, yeah, and I speak five languages, and I like you speak five languages. So it was like, okay, she's an athlete. She's really smart. And she just had that mojo of... 
I'm going to conquer the world. And she was like 24 years old at the time. My daughter, Allie, loves Tala as much as I do. And Tala now, you know, we thought we struck gold then, but the Tala now, we've all really struck gold. She's a freelance video journalist and a documentary filmmaker, and she has won awards. She continues to win awards, and she's the mom to a six-month, seen as six months now, six-month-old baby boy, who I just get the biggest kick out of because the look on his face, he always looks like he's about ready to write the next chapter of his symphony. He just, which I'm sure is a look that Tala had on her face when she was his age. So I can't wait to see, see her baby boy grow up. So Tala, as we've been here talking, I want you to do your takeaways from a millennial perspective. What have you heard? What's resonated with you? What questions you have? It's yours. So I think you guys talked about a few different topics today, but I want to just like go back to the word of feminism, the little discussion that you had about your daughter and her classmate and how different they had their views on feminism were. And I, I guess I'm in between you guys and that generation, right? And I grew up in Sweden, so obviously like my experience is very different. But having come to the U.S. as a 20-year-old, um, I think I was really set back by how feminism is a word here. It's like used on a daily basis. People really, and I think especially your generation, because you kind of were at the forefront of of that change in women, women's place in, in the workplace and how it changed from being at home mostly and actually going back to the workplace and things like that. Um, I think it's a really big difference. And you were talking about how like in socially you feel like men take like a bigger seat they speak over women and and just like how the even the debate last week we really saw and I think it's a really generational difference because like I don't feel that in my social setting when I'm at dinner or I'm with my colleagues or I'm actually at Columbia right now as a part-time student as well with my with my peers at school classmates at school I really don't feel it like I really feel like men um the young men that I work with um really respect my opinion or my female peers' opinions. And we really have an equal sort of space in whatever we do, whether it's work or socially. And I, I don't really, like, I that conversation really never comes to mind for me. I never really think about, wow, I feel like I, I, I wish I had more more opportunities or I wish I had equal opportunities as the male. Because maybe it's because my personal space or my social setting or my professional setting, but I really don't have that issue. I don't think about it. Part of it, I think, is is taking the role, taking the space, taking the conversation. Um, and I, I think that as people, more girls step into code, for example, in a place where 90% of coders are men. Uh, and I don't know the exact statistic, but it's just one example of a, a space that should be equal and it's not even close. Um, so I think the more it's it's an attitude, it's something that your parents give you, that your father actually, the way that he uh, treats you and influences you in the world. If we look at, I could give you four examples. I, th I think that that's where it comes from. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you feel empowered and that you feel that you can step into every space for sure that's there. But I mean, there are so many women in the world that don't feel that way, that are younger than us. Um, and younger than you significantly. And there's still a long list of issues that have to be tackled. And, you know, growing up in Sweden, which, you know, we, we look of as feminism mecca, you know, that's where it's our utopia. The feminist utopia is certainly there. So if you compare that to, you know, India, where somebody, women are required to wash their men's feet and drink the water after they've washed them. And that's something that's occurring on a daily basis um, there. So where where's the disconnect? And what, how can we contribute to change globally? You know, it's interesting you say this, that it, it depends on what personality you have. And I really mm -hmm. think sports, uh, as, a, as a recent mom and as a, yeah, I, I have a son, but it's a little bit different. But had I had a daughter or if I ever have a daughter, I really think sports make a difference. Because I, I, whether I was a captain or the last person coming in on the basketball court, sports gave me the confidence to to take equal space among men's or and men and boys that I was um, peers with in any space that I was in because I had that confidence confidence coming from practice. I trained, my body was really strong. I, you know, I learned about teamwork and I learned about leadership from being a captain. I learned about uh, competition and and 
it's okay to be aggressive in that space. You know, and we talk about this because I hear about it because I am quite aggressive in many people's, um, in many people's mind, but it comes from having had the opportunity to play sports and for many years. And, and I really think that that's something that I guess is lucky for me. And I, I know that there are a lot of women that feel that way, that they don't get to take that, but it, it really, I guess it comes from different, whether it's with your father that taught you or, or sports or whatever it is. But I completely I agree with you. I have a son as well. Um, that's 11. And, um, and I do see that they're transferable skill sets. Yeah. So if you're on the field and you're leading, or you're on the field and you're being aggressive, and and it's interesting because I my my son Connell has come home and said, I like lacrosse because it's aggressive. I like the interaction, and I could never imagine my daughter saying that. Um, but at the same time, it is those skills that you take from sports or from being in a choir or from being in any collaborative environment. Um, where those dynamics exist, if you can take those off the playing field, you can succeed. And I think one of the other things, too, as we're talking, we're talking about Hillary Clinton being in the presidential debate. See, I didn't take it as her not speaking. I took it as her purposefully not speaking. It was like, let's just totally let Donald Trump speak himself into a a whole lot. Yes, exactly. So and I looked did. at it, yes, and he, and he did. did, and she was very <laughs> successful at it. So I yes. gave her credit for, so I didn't look at her and say she's not being aggressive enough. I looked at her and thought, she's being really smart. She's and playing so this really smart. So yes. Yes. I was so impressed. And, yes. and say whatever you want to say about Hillary Clinton and whatever has uh, has gone on in her past and the choices she's made uh, professionally, but she was a professional. Yes, she, like she, she, she played it brilliantly. Brilliant. So we're going to go on. I want to make sure we cover a lot of things. Anything else that you want to cover? Any questions you have for us? Mm, maybe go back to the mentoring moments and, and the grief that how, how the grief that you were going through helped you overcome uh, sort of the passing of your brother and just forgiving yourself. I, I'm curious to know how that impacts your daily life like how do you have these aha moments in life and it's not that drastic or dramatic of an experience you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like how do you in your job like in we are kind of in the same field right now uh, although i'm not producing but i'm more on the on behind the camera and directing but um i wonder how you have those moments aha moments in your daily work where you feel like ah, i get it now this is how we should go about with this film or something like that well i think it um it arose definitely from that period of my life where I was bathed in grief. Um, I grew a bullshit meter, for lack of a better term, where suddenly, um, if there was some, and, and having children does that as well, where you, just every minute of the day just t- has different value than it did previous to having children and previous to lo- losing my brother. So if there was someone that I didn't necessarily respect or, or just didn't fill me up in a positive way, um, I, I no longer had time for them. Um, or if there was something that I was going to do, I was going to lend my time to that wasn't going to propel me forward, I would no longer go. Where the, My life was filled with lots of frivolity before that. So it was a gift that started there where the bullshit meter was just there where I'd say, this is authentic, this is not. This is worthy of my time, this is not. And then it just started to grow. And then um, piggybacking on, on what Denise was saying uh, became much more intuitive. And part of it was the the sensory of grief because it would come in these waves. So I I think I have to get out of this situation or I can just sit here and breathe and pretend that I'm not in extraordinary pain or whatever it is at at that moment. Um, And I think that my my empathy and my um, intuition in terms of everything became much more powerful as a result of that pain. And so every day you just build on that. And then synchronicity happens. And then you know you're on the right path. So I have a little bit of a follow-up. I don't know if you had something. Did you want to? No, go ahead. No, your time. Um, a follow-up to that. You talked about bullshit meter, right? I think that's so interesting because in the networking world, and again, coming from Sweden, it's a very different viewpoint on networking and sort of propelling your career, um, especially in our field. It's, it's a very small world. People know each other. And sort of having the privilege to know those people propels your career a lot of times. Sure. Also, you have to be talented and know what you're doing and all that stuff. But um, in moments when a, a young woman comes to you and she has two minutes to impress you, I find that so difficult difficult as as I've gotten into my career and I'm not 
by by any means far into my career, but just a few years into my career, I think about that a lot because in Sweden, the way of networking or meeting new people or coming into a sort of a network is very, very different than here. And I struggle with that a lot as I have these like elevator pitches or things like that. How do you um, detect someone that's genuine or authentic when they have just a few moments to impress you as a producer, uh, when they have an idea that they... Um it's really a difficult skill that I feel Americans really do well that us Europeans don't. Really? So I'm curious about how do you, um, how is your bullshit meter working there? Well, it's interesting. I think there, I think there's two, um, there's two ways to answer that. So if you're having dinner with your family and someone comes up and says, Oh my God, I'm such a fan of yours. Do you mind if I have a few minutes? It's a wildly inappropriate time to talk about that. And it's an invasion and an intrusion and it's not okay. So it's just, you know, being aware of when it is okay. But if you're in the elevator with someone at the women in the world conference and you're like, hi, I'm producing a film about whether or not Muslim women should wear a headscarf, um, that it's relevant and it's amazing. And if you're passionate about what you're doing and I can hear that you're going to, your message will ignite conversations in the world, um, then of course I'd want to support you. And I think it's just about knowing if your message or what you're trying to achieve is worthy of the interruption, as, as harsh as that might sound. Um, and then I found that if it is, everyone will help you. It's honestly about where it comes from within you as an artist and as a journalist and, and what your voice is. And do you think it's also important to have it down what it is you do because people do have such a short attention span. Absolutely. And I, I think you really have to knock it out. And it's hard. I remember when I was starting Girlquake and I would, my, whatever I, it was like, and then I'm doing blah, 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 blah. And, and there were a lot of ands in my, what I was doing. And I was having drink, I was having lunch with someone and I have a lot of things happen at lunch. Have you noticed that? I was like, that's why I paused at that. I was like, I, no, I was having lunch. A lot of things happen at lunch. And she said to me, what you do is you amplify the voices of young women. And I thought, that's brilliant. So I think sometimes it's taking it to other people because they hear what you're doing and they're able to bring it down mm -hmm. into a soundbite for lack of a better term, that you can just put it out there. So I'm not sure people know what amplifying the voices of women really means when I say that, but it gets their attention. And then they're like, well, tell me more. Yeah, it's it's really tough. You know, even if you are at a conference or the space is appropriate for, for me as a young uh, journalist or documentary filmmaker, or if I just have a film idea for a film, it's really hard for me to have the courage to come up to someone that um, potentially has the funding to help me make my film. But yes, you have to be very concise, but it's really hard as an outsider to come in. I have 30 seconds to impress you and I'm really nervous. And, and this is a do or die situation a lot of times, you know? And yes, the message has to be very concise, but I, I really struggle with that. Like being genuine and being truly myself, but at the same time selling you because my, my time, there's 10 people behind me trying to speak to you. Um, it's just, really hard unless you are inside of the clique you have the family or network that can support you and get you to the right person just being like a single filmmaker that is trying to make a film that she's really passionate about it's really hard to get get those conversations i would say step into the shoes that that you're already in you're you are absolutely worthy of the conversations you are absolutely worthy of being in the circles you are you are also amplifying the voice of of girls and women and your message is extraordinary you deserve a seat at the table um and until you own that and you feel that way because that's also something that people feel from you you know if you're if you're in a room with somebody and you feel really insecure like you're not sure if you're not they feel that as well mm. you're there yeah. Step into the shoes, shine from your sternum, look them directly in the eye, own it. Because your message is important and it's sincere and it's authentic. I think that's also another thing that separates a man from a woman. Um, and maybe it's not traditional feminism, but like having the courage to be like, I really want to make this film. I know this is an awesome film. Mm -hmm. I know this film will make a difference. And having the courage to just like step up and talk about it. You Absolutely. Know? But that's where you have to own it. And that's hard sometimes. It's hard for me, even now at my age sometimes, to get in that mental frame and say, I'm going to own this. Because I can be in a room with people who are much more famous than I am, right? And so you're like, ooh, but they've But then I look at it and say, and sometimes people need to remind me, no, you've accomplished as much as she has. She just chose this path 
that gets her more publicity or her job. She is more public than you are. So I, th- I really do think that that's such great advice for all of us at all ages is to own it, to own what we're doing. And that goes back to being passionate about what you're doing because then, and you are passionate all about what you're doing, then you can own it. You, you really can own it. And on that we have to, oh, no. I know, already, I know, no. already, I know, it goes so fast, as I said, we all sit around like for two hours at a time, but I want to thank you both so much, thank so I'm going to hold so hands, much. we're going to hold hands before we start here, we're going to have a girl moment, so this is wonderful, so thank you all, thank, thank you. you both. So I'd love to know, what do you think about our conversation today? Are you embracing or ready to embrace the word aggressive? Peggy and I have our pinky promise that we are. Are you joining us? And what are your thoughts about feminism? So weigh in with your own stories. Tweet me at Denise Rastari, because I really do want to know. I want to keep this conversation going. Also, one of the things I've learned from all of the women who have shared their stories on Mentoring Moments is you got to ask for what you want, right? So I'm asking for what I want. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and check out my show notes on Forbes.com. Until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories are really important. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. It's time to break the cycle of waste and mess. Time to stop accepting that the way things have been done are the way they should be done. Control-Alt-Delete everything you thought you knew about how to period. We're flipping the script. We're throwing out the book. We're challenging the period status quo. The Diva Cup is eco-friendly, reusable, and offers up to 12 hours leak-free protection. So what are you waiting for? Join the inner revolution with the Diva Cup. The Diva Cup is used for menstrual flow only. Always read and follow the user guide. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.